Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church family. It is great to see your faces, and some of you decided to take your coat off already. This is great. Don't leave it on the whole time. You fall asleep. But uh, if you're a guest, we are glad that you're here today and that you brave the cold weather to come out here and be a part of this church. Maybe you're looking for a new church. Uh, there's one thing we ask you to do. If you don't feel comfortable doing it today, you can do it next week uh, when you come back. But is there's a connection card, is what we call it, on the bottom of your worship program. If you'd fill it out, if you want to just drop it in the offering boxes, you can do that. We don't expect you to drop any money in the offering boxes today if you would just drop that card in there. Or if you want to take it to somebody who has an I Can Help badge on. Normally we have a tent outside uh, that says for first-time guests out there, but we didn't want to do that to our volunteers today. Uh, so the tent will not be outside. Uh, you can just take it to somebody who has the I Can Help uh, badge on. But today what we're going to do is we're going to be beginning a brand new series out of the book of First Peter. And we're going to be in this series from now until Easter. And so it's only about four pages in the New Testament. And it'll take you about 20 minutes to read through the whole book. But we're going to take the next three months and going through some of these, they're really life-changing truths that are in this book. And uh, asking God to transform us as a, as a people and then us as a church and ultimately impact this city and, Lord willing, uh, the nations as a result of some of the things that happen over these next few months. And so I hope that you'll join us, continue with us if you are a guest. Let me pray for us as we open up God's Word this morning. Father, I just come with these folks, uh, many of whom I know, some of whom are new. Uh, God, I pray that you would bind our hearts together on mission for you to connect people to Jesus Christ so their lives would be changed. I pray if there are any here that don't have a relationship with your son Jesus, that today would be the day uh, that they begin that relationship. And I pray as we open up your word, that you'd speak into our lives, open up our lives to you, open up our hearts to you. God, help us to do the things you desire for us to do as a result of what you'll say into hundreds of different scenarios today. There are different people that are in different spots in relationships, and uh, work, and family, and sp their spiritual journey. And so you have a different word for each one. As I speak words, will you supernaturally take those words and plant them into their lives and use them for your glory? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, some of you are new to our church, and so you may not know, I actually have four daughters. I know I look really young, don't I? Thank you so much for the compliment. I appreciate that. Uh, I've got four daughters, uh, 10 years old, 10, uh, 12 years old, 8 years old, and 6 years old. So they're all about two years apart. And as long as I can remember for Christmases, we've given out some toy, either ourselves, our grandparents, aunts and uncles, whoever it is, that looks something like these things here. This one particular, this kitchen, you may look at it and think, that doesn't look like it requires much assembly. You would be wrong. This is a memory that I have of after a Christmas Eve service. You wonder, what does a pastor do after Christmas Eve? This is what I did. Go home, put this, snap plastic things into the wrong places, then be mad, cursing the directions. That is exactly what happens after that spirit-anointed moment of a Christmas Eve service. I look at this microwave. It reminds me that I didn't have batteries that Christmas Eve for this little microwave. You want to, now the buttons have had this for years. Now, as you can see, it's seen better days. Uh, do you know what they charge for batteries at a gas station on Christmas Eve? It should be. It is sinful. It is wrong. I had to do that. We got over here a vet clinic. They got little animals. We got one. This was a gift that this year, a Christmas present, so it did not come with the bunny, uh, but it comes with these little, you know, files for stuff. And we got a dollhouse. Dollhouse is probably one of the first things we got. It has seen better days as well. It's not always been this color. This is marker that you see on the front of it. It actually used to have another wing over here, and our kids became minimalists, which we're going to talk about today. Just kidding. <laughs> They're probably wrestling and fell on it, broke the thing off. I don't know what happened got little, you know, little people. You can put little dogs in there, bedroom sets, all kinds of stuff and play with it. And it's really cute to see. Here's what I've learned over these last 10 to 12 years of watching this happen. 
the window that kids do this is pretty small. Now, I've said that I've experienced it for like 10 to 12 years. That's because I have four daughters. It's not like they play for 12 years. And then they start around, what, three, four years old. They'll go until eight, 10 maybe. Depends on the kid. Individual, it's all different. And it's really cute while it happens. But I was thinking about some of these toys in light of what we're about to open up and God's Word here in just a moment and thinking about how short this time window is and then thinking about my stage of life. At some point, my kids are going to go away and go to college. I know that's going to be like a million dollars a year by the time that happens. And then they're going to come back, and I'm going to ask them this question. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do for a job? Where are you going to live? And I'm hoping they're not going to say my house at that point. Yeah, they probably will. If they say that. And they, and they still want to play with the dollhouse. And they, that's going to be real life for them. And they're going to play with that. That's not going to be cute anymore. If one of them says, I'm going to be a chef. And, you know, this kitchen, there's little stuff that's all over our, our house. There's little boxes that look like they have food in them. Macaroni and cheese, beans, everything. They don't have any food inside of them. They, they make fake meals. And we all know this stuff is fake, right? Like, we, we get that. Because there's never a grocery bill here, no matter how many meals you make. Nobody ever show, no, please don't show up at the front door of this house with an emergency unless our kids are like really warped in how they're playing with the, the toys that are here. There's never, they're not going to turn the power off there. Animals don't die at the vet clinic. Everyone gets healed. They just put a little fake syringe in them and they're all good, right? So we know this is fake. It's cute. But if when my kids get done with school and they've gone to college for four years and they're 25 years old, however old they are at that point, they come home and say, I'm going to be a vet at this clinic. It does have a waiting room on the backside in case you didn't see that. Do you know what I'm going to say then? No, you're not. Hey, by the way, and I wouldn't say this to my eight-year-old daughter who owns this, but I, all your patients are already dead, honey. <laughs> At 30, if they're trying to do that, not cute anymore. They're wasting their lives. And I wonder if God ever looks at some of the things that we spend our lives on and says, you're wasting your life as a loving father because the things that you're doing, they don't last. What you're doing, it doesn't really matter. In fact, I know that Jesus said it. In Matthew chapter 6, he says it like this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you invest your life, your heart will follow. It's not where your heart is, your money goes. Where you put the money, that, your heart goes after that. And so where do you put your time? Where do you put your money? Where do you invest? That's where your heart is. We're beginning a series today on 1 Peter. The overarching theme of 1 Peter is this. This is not your home. We've titled the series Not Home Yet with that idea in mind. And so we're going to spend three months going through it. That's the overarching theme. Here's my hope for you, my goal for you as a church. What I'm praying for us individually as, as you come to mind and for us as corporately as a church whole is not, not that you leave and go, there's more to life than just this. Here's why. Everyone knows that. Pagans know that. Non-believers, no interest in church, they know that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us this, that God's purposed eternity in all of our hearts. Some of us don't have words to express it that way, to say this place is not our home. But we all know there's more to life than just this, because all this stuff gets boring. doesn't matter if you get a new dollhouse. doesn't matter if you get a new car, new job, go to a new church. Like all that stuff, where, you know why? Because you were made for more than this. And so we all know that there's eternity. My goal for you is not that you would know that. My hope for you, my goal for us as a church, is that we would grow up in our faith and that we would live as though this were true. Because if we live like this is true, 
that's the difference a lot of times between what we consider normal Christians and high-impact Christians. People that make a difference in this world in such a way that it lasts for eternity. You read about some of them in Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Faith in the Bible. And it's got all these people, Noah and Abraham and Moses. They're known for walking by faith. You know what the Bible says of them? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38. The world is not worthy of them. My hope is that we will become people like that. That we will grow into living with this. If we would grasp this, this idea. And you know, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what the key was. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this in verse 16. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This place is not your home. If we would grasp this, it would lead to in our lives, it would transform many areas of our life. Unbelievable generosity. Because it's just stuff. It's just this place here. I mean, do you want a dollhouse? Come on up. It's just stuff. It, it would lead to a, a fearless boldness. A boldness. We wouldn't be afraid to take steps of faith. We wouldn't be afraid to share Christ with people. We wouldn't be afraid to do when God calls us to do something in our hearts to step out and actually do it. We'd have faith that's not dead. An inexpressible joy, regardless of circumstances. You'll see that talked about specifically, clearly, in next week's message that we'll look at in First Peter. A joy that you couldn't even put words to in your heart, regardless of what's happening in your life, if we would grasp this. And so today as we kick off this series, I want to just ask and answer one question. Why? Why should we live our lives with an eternal perspective? And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to lay the foundation today in 1 Peter chapter 1, looking at the first five verses of the book. And so the greeting that he gives and the first statements he makes. And in the first 12 verses of this book, there's not a single command, just so you know. There's not a bunch of stuff for us to do. Instead, there's truth for us to know that should then saturate our hearts. And then out of joy of knowing this truth, it will transform the way that we live. But there's no commandment for us to obey Obey as we look at this. This book, 1 Peter, as you're turning there, it's right after the book of Hebrews in your Bible towards the back of the New Testament. And if you're going to be hanging out with us for a while, I'll just challenge you to mark it and we'll read through it together. And maybe you can read through it all at a time and then sometimes just focusing on specific verses. And, and God will use this, I believe, to transform our lives because the guy who wrote it, he's familiar. Uh, we meet him in the Gospels. His name is Peter. And when he's, we meet him in the Gospels, he's a pretty impulsive guy. It's like one moment you can see him proclaiming you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then he denies Jesus. Walks on water, then blows it. (laughs) And that's why many of us can relate to the guy. He's a guy that God uses in the book of Acts, because we continue to get to see his life, that preaches the message, that gets the whole thing, that we, the stuff that we do and that people are doing all around the world today called the church. God gets it all started with a sermon that he preaches that says, repent of your sins. Turn from your rebellion against God and turn to God and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And the people who did that became the church. And then you see this guy, he goes to the book of Acts, he's beaten, he's tortured, he's imprisoned for the gospel. And, and when we get to 1 Peter, that's about 30 years after all that stuff we read about about him. And, and just to be charitable with all of us, everybody matures some over a 30-year period. I hope that all of us in 30 years from now are not the same people we are today. Not because we don't, I don't like who you are today, I'm not saying that. I hope I'm not the same person in 30, in 30 years, we all change, things change. Life is dynamic. Peter's changed. But he's got these experiences, and now he's writing to people who are experiencing persecution. This is a doom and gloom type stuff that's taking place in their lives. Nero is in charge. Nero's a guy who hates Christians so much. Historically, we know this to be true, that he would burn Christians on stakes in his backyard to light the entertainment that was taking place in his backyard. 
He burns the city down in 64 AD. He blames it on the Christians so that more people will persecute Christians. It's early 60s, probably just before 64 AD. These people are facing this, but here's the crazy thing about the book. The book isn't doom and gloom. These people are suffering, but what Peter points them to is not to all their pain, but to their God. And he shows them and reminds them continually of an eternal perspective. This place is not your home. So let's look at it together. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, and then he starts to tell us about our identity. That's really what the first part is all about, who we are in Christ, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then this blessing, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, the very thing we were just singing about, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so here we are, we've got these, these verses here. All he's talking about here is change. Now, we all know that we need to change. Change is big business, by the way, too. If you haven't noticed it, it'll be all over the news, especially now at the beginning of the new year. People are making New Year's resolutions, and so people want to lose weight. The gyms are full. You know, there's all these diet plans. There's South Beach diet and olive oil only diet and paleo diet and whatever the different diets are that are out there. It'll be on TV, AdWords on your social media, whatever it is. Click on, it's not your fault you're fat. You just need to buy this pill. Like, everything would be great in your life if you just bought this pill. Marketers know we want change. Learn a new language, just click on this link. If you just, I can click the link and I know a new language and then give me $50 for the rest of your life. And, and we, can, we can manufacture some change. Here's the discouraging news. We can't genuinely change. The Bible tells us that. The prophet Jeremiah says that can a leopard change his spots? Now we can do some superficial things. We can learn a new language. We can change some numbers on a scale. You can buy products to get thinner or thicker or tanner or more hair or less hair or whatever it is that you want to buy. But they're all superficial changes. We can't genuinely change at our core who we are. Well, that's bad news, especially when you consider if you've read any of our literature, you've got any handouts or anything like that. Our vision as a church is to connect people to Jesus for life change. Let me tell you, we, I didn't move here so that we could tell nice people they can be a better version of themselves. We didn't move here to tell sinners how bad they are and there's no hope either. We didn't move here just to say, hey, but here's some self-improvement tips. If we have this talk once a week, we'll get together and I'll tell you how to have better finances, better marriage. Here's the reality. When we talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change, we're talking about a genuine transformation that takes place inside, not behavior stuff, inside. And then it changes the way we behave, but it's at our core that we're transformed. That's what Peter starts off talking about here. If you go through it, all this... When you receive new life in Christ, which is what it is to be born again, we just read in this passage, what we just sang about in the song we were looking at, it's what we talked about at the Christmas Eve service. We had about 20 people, it was a little bit more than 20, I was told, but we try to usually not inflate numbers. About 20 people say that they made a decision to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Many of you have made that decision before. If that was one, if you were one of those 20 people, listen to what the Bible says about you. You have not just a new, yeah, I'm going to start attending this thing. I'm going to start hanging out with a different group of people. I'm going to stop swearing or smoking. No, no, no. no. You've got a new identity. You are a new person. It says in verse 1, you're an exile. Do you know what that means? 
You're a stranger here. If you read, if you brought your Bibles and you look over a chapter, in chapter 2 and verse 11, it says that we're sojourners or strangers in this place, depending on your translation. In other words, this place is not our home. We're foreigners here, elect exiles. And then he talks to these folks, they're exactly where they're living, the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, all these different places. According to the foreknowledge of God, you know what that means? That means that God has a plan for you. And it's a plan from before the beginning of time. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says that God's predestined you for works, good works that he has for you to walk in. In the sanctification, that's a fancy word to say you've been set apart. You've actually been set aside from the, 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 the common, the normal, what everybody else is doing as foreigners. You've been set apart by the Spirit of God. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with His blood. Now, that's a weird one. What does that mean, that you, you've sprinkled with His blood? We see images of that in the Old Testament. Some of them are about a covenant, and we've already got that language here because He's entered into a covenant relationship with us. It's not talking about that. One of the pictures, and this is the one I believe is being talked about here, is of cleansing, like when a leper is cleansed. So we've been cleansed, set apart, brought into a covenant relationship with God as foreigners, elect exiles. So why? To live for a place, this isn't our home. But why would we do that? Why would we live with an eternal perspective? That's where verse 3 tells us, because you have a living hope. That's our first truth today that I want you to focus in on is this, that we're foreigners with a living hope. We're foreigners in this place. This place is not our home, and we've got a, a living hope. It's not just a wish. This hope has a name. But remember who Peter's writing to here. Isn't it interesting in light of these folks are hurting? Some of them feel hopeless. They're helpless. And think about what's going on. They're suffering for their faith. And, and some of you have had an experience before where you've gotten cut off from your family because you placed your faith in Jesus. Some because you have a Muslim background maybe. Or some of you really strict Catholic background. Or maybe you came out of a cult. And I know that's true for certain people here. And some of you are like, well, that's, that's not me. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and this is totally foreign to you, but some of you know what it's like to be set aside, to be ostracized. Some of these people, that's their experience. They trusted Christ, now they don't have any family. Some of these people have trusted Christ and people in their family have been killed because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Some of them haven't experienced that, but they know that it's coming. See, at this point, in the early 60s when Peter writes this, Christianity has now spread to every major city in the Roman Empire. And it's become normal that if you place your faith in Christ, you will experience suffering, you will experience persecution. So in addition to the normal things of life, diseases, miscarriages, the problems in this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. They've got all that trouble plus persecution for their faith. And look at what Peter says. Read the verses again to yourself. Have you ever had the privilege of sitting with someone who's in pain? I know some of you have. I know everybody here has been through pain. But some of you have been the people that other folks call when something terrible happens, the spouse leaves, miscarry a baby, the doctor calls and there's terrible news. They lose a job, they can't get a job, all the neighbors think everything's fine, but they know everything's not fine financially. And somebody's died, the police do show up at your door. Like that kind of stuff happens and you get to sit there with someone, then you know what it's like. Everything in you wants to take that pain away for those people. If you could just say something that reverses it, you would say it. You want to empathize with them. You want to have compassion with them. You want to enter. There's no words that fix the problem. And so you just be quiet and you sit there. But you want, the, you want to enter into their pain with them. Do you notice Peter doesn't do that at all? Peter would fail a counseling class if he said, here's what I'm going to do for these people that are in Pontius and Galatia and they're struggling. And he doesn't talk about the pain. He, he, he basically goes to the book of Job. You know why we love the book of Job? It's not because Job suffered so much. It's because the book of Job points us to Job's God. 
That, that's what Peter does here is he says, hey, we're not going to, we can talk about the pain. We'll talk about some of the suffering a little bit later in the book, but here's what you need to realize. You've been transformed, and it's not about this. You're exile, you're elect, God's chosen you, elect, exiles, foreigners, in this place. You don't even belong. Anything that happens here is just temporary. He's not making light of their situation, though. I've read before, Paul makes a statement that's similar to this in 2 Corinthians. He says, for your slight and momentary affliction. And I've read that before and been like, Paul, who are you to say somebody's pain is slight? Or it's momentary. Listen to what he says, the, the whole verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 16 to 17, he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. So God's up to something. Verse 17, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul has suffered more than anyone in this room. I'm willing to bet that. And so when I read that and I think, you lack compassion, Paul. Why would you say this slight and momentary? If you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand what somebody I know is going through. He says, in light of eternity, it's momentary. Those people, sometimes it seems like these impact Christians, they know something the rest of us don't know. It's this. All this is temporary stuff. Don't be like an adult playing with a dollhouse. God's got a, a plan for you, and it's bigger than just this stuff that we're experiencing. Even the affliction, even the worst thing you can go through, it's momentary, not to make light of it. But don't make this place all about this place. You're what Peter calls here elect exiles. Well, Hebrews says the world's not worthy of people who grasp this truth. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 later, he says this, Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. For many of whom I have often told, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Who are people that are enemies of the cross? Their end is, their, is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. Why? With mindset on earthly things. So if your mind is set just on earthly things, guess what you are called in the Bible? You're an enemy of the cross of Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what does Paul say? Verse next verse. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this place is not our home. That's what Peter's saying here when he says that we're these elect exiles, that we're these foreigners in this place. Now get this. If this is true, if this is true, how dumb would it be to live as if this wasn't true? Because here, I'm not stupid. I, maybe some of you might question that in this moment, but... I get that sometimes I'll preach stuff. It could be glorious truth. It could be, you know, the, how God is an infinite God or glorious God or about the cross of Christ, what Jesus did to take our sin, take God's wrath. You know, our enemy was God. He took God's wrath upon himself. We can talk about those things. And you amen it in here and be excited about it and encourage and challenge and you're going to change forever. And then you go eat over at, you know, Leesville Tap Room. And by the time the Panthers kick off the football game, you forgot what we talked about. Here's the reality. I do it too and I preach these sermons. If, we, if this is true, if this is true, and we live like it's not, how dumb are we? Think about it like this. Imagine you went to check into a hotel this week. Pick any hotel here in town. Just pick Embassy Suites over in Briar Creek. Say so you go to check in at the Embassy Suites. While you're checking in, uh, the person next to you, you're checking in too, staying in the exact same time that you're staying. You're staying from Friday to Friday. And you're going to be there for one week, and you hear that same thing. And you get rooms right next door to each other. You're going into your rooms, and you see each other going into the rooms. But then the next day, you come out, and that guy's got an Amazon Prime package at his front door. 
and he got up before you did, and he comes back. He's already been to Home Goods and to Target, and he's bought some stuff for the, it's a suite. I don't know if you've ever been in those things, but there's like a little kitchenette in there. He's buying new dishes and uh, some, new, some new napkins and different things to decorate the kitchen in there. And he had something delivered to the front door that night because Amazon Prime, the droid flew down your hallway, dropped the package off right there in the thing. And you're like, this guy's spending money fixing up his hotel room, but he's only going to be here for a week. The next day, he wakes you up because you hear, do you ever hear a wet saw with tile before? You know, buzzing those things, that'll wake you up. And, and he's knocking some stuff around, and you go over to his door, and you say, what's, what's going on in your room? And so I didn't really like the layout that much, and so I decided to change it a little bit. Like, you're, you're renovating the hotel room that you're in? He's like, yeah, I rented the one on the other side, too. I'm going to put in an addition. I'm kind of moving over to the side there. The next day, you bump into the guy in the lobby, and he's getting on, you hear him on the phone, he's with his financial advisor. He's cashing in his 401k because he wants to make some upgrades to the pool area. What would you say? You might not say, what would you think? We're Southerners, we wouldn't say anything. You'd think, you're a fool! What are you doing, man? You might ask him the question first, are you moving in here? Are you staying? No, I'm just, just a week. Uh, you're cashing in your 401k for a week? It's like, I just like to live in the moment. Seize the day. I want to be in the moment. You fool! God says that about us when we live that way, just so you know. And we may not like to hear that, but it's in Luke chapter 12. There's this guy, he's doing well financially, and so he says, I'm going to just keep building bigger barns. And then he says, eat, drink, and be merry. And sometimes you hear that quoted. You even hear people that aren't Christians, they'll quote that verse. But put it into context, it's not a good verse, just so you know. Let me read it to you. It's in Luke chapter 12. Verses 19 through 21. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Just be in the Seize the day. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required. This life is just a vapor. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? Who cares? You're not taking them with you. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, if, you get what, if we would grasp this truth, if it's true, if it is true that this place is not our home, if it is true that we're living for a different place and it's got an imperishable inheritance we're going to talk about in just a moment, if it's true that we can lay up treasures in that place, how foolish would we be to live like this place is all there is? Like kids playing with a dollhouse when they're 50. You see, are you kidding? Wasting your life, you fool. It's like some of these impact Christians, they get this. It's like the early Christians. Early Christians got this. Do you realize the early, early church grew by about 40% per decade? Think about that. 40% per decade. Do you know why? Because people saw real transformation in their life. It wasn't just, hey, I'm going to invite my Christian friends to go to another church to come over to this church because we've got better programs or better preaching or better music or whatever the thing is, and they, they just need a change. That was like people that were without hope, trusting Christ, even though that might cost them their family, might cost them their lives, because you know what they saw? They saw something real. You know what our culture wants more than anything? Not slick presentations. They want real. You know how that happens? Not from my teaching. I can share stuff about my personal life. I can do all that stuff. They want to see into you. They want to know, does this actually make a difference? And that's what they saw in the early Christians. You know, the Christians, it wasn't because Peter was such a great preacher. It wasn't because they had this great children's program. Do you know what it was? It was the Christians' lives have been transformed. 
There's one uh, Princeton sociologist, Rodney Stark. He wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity. You might check it out. There's a bunch of stories about the early Christians. One summary of the book I read this week said this. It said, Stark was puzzled at how a marginalized, persecuted, often uneducated group of people were able to not only survive but thrive. He concludes that a key reason was their willingness to sacrifice themselves out of love for each other and their world. The sacrifice released an explosion of light and heat the world had never known. And he goes on and he tells stories, stories I've told some of them to you before. Like in the early church in 165 and in 251 AD, so about 100 years after this book, Christianity is spreading like crazy in this book. 100 years afterwards, it's still spreading. Do you know why? When things would go bad, Christians showed up. They sacrificed their own lives. So there are two plagues, in 165 and in 251 A.D., killed a third of the world's population. And people were being discarded when they would get sick because there's a plague going on. You know, hey, whenever you're around somebody with a plague, then you get the plague and you die. They would kick people out and leave them in the gutters even though they're still alive while they were sick. So imagine your family kicks you out of your home, leaves you in the gutter, and then Christians come and nurse you back to health. Do you think you pay attention to their Christ? Because that's what the Christians did. The Christians were known for their morality. They were known for their sacrifice. They were known for being different. Do you know what a foreigner is? A foreigner is someone who has different values. A foreigner is someone who has different customs. A foreigner is from a different place. And they could, they'll assimilate into a culture as much as it doesn't contradict their values. So it's not saying reject this world, but there are things that you are just different. And we're going to see that as we go through Peter. This place is not your home. If we would live that out, people would realize... Oh, that's real. Do you know what most people think of Christianity? We're going to be real. Let's be real about it. Most people think that Christians, we have the exact same gods, the exact same values, the exact same customs as everybody else in this world, and we dress it up with Jesus language. We put our prosperity, we just call it in Jesus. All the, the life goals and achievements and outcomes we want, we just put Jesus on it. And we go to church on Sundays to comfort ourselves in our hypocrisy. The world knows that. If this was real, we'd have unbelievable generosity willing to sacrifice. I'm not talking about to this church, by the way. I'm talking about just in giving our lives away. The world would not be worthy of the way that we live our lives, because this isn't our place. Boldness, fearless boldness, inexpressible joy. No matter what comes, this is temporary. It's momentary affliction, if, the, if it's true. Why would we do it? Why would we do it, though? Verse 3, not only are we foreigners, foreigners with a living hope, it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I've told you before about hope, how hope in the Bible is different than what most of us think of as hope. And I just my hope is, as I share this with you, is the more times I say it, the more likely it is you are to remember it. And so hope that we oftentimes think of is a wish. I say to a kid, you know, middle schooler here at Pine Hollow, I say, hey, it's going to snow a quarter of an inch next week. Do you think school's going to get canceled? I hope so. They don't know. Now, history would say that it would because we're in Wake County, but we don't know. You go watch Star Wars. I don't know what your thoughts are on Star Wars. Some people loved it. Some people didn't love it. Do you think the next Star Wars is going to be better than this Star Wars? I hope so. You don't know. You just wish that it would be true. And we tend to read that into the New Testament. When the New Testament authors are saying the word hope, it's not a wish. It's absolute certainty. It's just that what they're talking about is future, so it hasn't been experienced yet. They're talking about here a living hope. So it's not just a hope, a certainty, but it's a living hope. And so what is it that it's talking about? Why the word living here? Living is the opposite of dead, dead opposite of futile. This is what he's talking about. The futile hope is what the world has. This world has a futile. Any hope that they would have is not based on anything. It's apart from Christ. The, the hope that's being talked about here is Jesus. 
If you go through these first three verses, four times Jesus is mentioned in three verses. Uh, It's based on the resurrection of Christ. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. If you don't have Christ, the Bible says you are without hope. And so sometimes you meet people that are not followers of Jesus, and someone will die. They'll say, well, I know I'm going to see him again. I'm going to be in a better place. Based on what? I'm not trying to be mean, but it's just a wish. There's no, there, you actually have no hope because there was no relationship with Christ. But if you have Christ, you have a living hope as long as the resurrection is true. And so you've got to ask yourself that question. Do you, believe, do you really believe the resurrection? Because you know the Bible says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if the resurrection is not true, we are more hopeless than any pagan. It's worse to have believed in Christ and the resurrection not be true than to not believe in Jesus at all. It's so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, if you think I'm making this up. It says, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But here's the reality. The resurrection is true. And we have a living Savior. And because we have a living Savior, we have a living hope. Amen? Not only do we have a living hope, but we also have an eternal inheritance. See, we're foreigners with a living hope, but also, second point, we're foreigners with an eternal inheritance. Look at the next verse. Not only do we have a living hope that's from Christ because of his resurrection to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So here he's talking about eternity. All of these things point to this is an everlasting inheritance that you receive. It's an eternal inheritance. It's got these three different words that are used here. And I've shared with you before, a couple times through this, this message already, I've said the statement, sometimes it seems like there's people that know something no one else knows, you ever met people like that just in, in, in practical everyday situations? Like they, they know something and it's causing them to live different in that moment. Not because they've been commanded to, because they believe something different than what the rest of people believe. I had a friend tell me this week about a cousin of his who in 2012 at Christmas time, think about he was a high school student, think about you buy a high school student at Christmas time. At Christmas time, his parents were wanting to buy him video games and clothes and give him cash. He said, I don't want any of that. I want some cryptocurrency. Exactly. They laughed at him. They're like, what's cryptocurrency? When I tell you what it was, you probably many of you have heard of it, I'm sure. It's called Bitcoin. And so they're laughing at him. He's asking for Bitcoin back in 2012. He's now sitting, as a 24-year-old, on about $400,000 from those Bitcoins. Thanks for the video games, Mom, like the rest of us. Like, he knew something the rest of us didn't know, believed something the rest of us didn't believe. It changed the way that he lived. A bunch of us are going, man, I want to go back to 2012, get a couple $20 bitcoins. (laughs) Here's the truth that's bigger than bitcoin. You have an inheritance that is eternal. Why would you be so worried about the stuff here? It's, It's described here for us, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. In Greek, each one of these words starts with the same letter, has the same ending. He's trying to alliterate it to make it memorable for us. But here we, we've got these words in English, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Think about this inheritance that is being given to us, an imperishable inheritance. I was thinking this week, how do I illustrate imperishable for, for folks? How can we, what can we grasp of that? And then I remembered, y'all, a bunch of y'all gave me fruitcakes. <laughs> you know, heavy, those things could be like self-defense weapons. They're heavy, by the way. I don't know if they expire. They, they just, I think they just get regifted over and over and over again for long periods of time. But most stuff that we live for, it's perishable stuff. Easy illustrations money. I was reading this week about John Paul Getty. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, one of the wealthiest men that's ever, ever lived. When he died, he'd have the equivalent of what in 2017 would have, would have been a $9 billion estate. All kinds of money. Incredibly miserable guy. 
was divorced five times, said that he didn't believe that you could have a lasting relationship with a woman and be a successful business person. And he said, and I hate failure. Also said, I'd give all of my many millions of dollars to have one lasting marriage. He knew something was missing. He thought maybe the marriage would do it. It won't, by the way. His family is miserable. He gives them all kinds of money. Somebody just gave you a whole bunch of money. They're miserable. But even if they weren't miserable, even if they had all kinds of money and it made them happy on this earthly life, who cares? Do you know why? Because they're going to stand before God. And we're enemies with God. That's what it means to sin, by the way, is you're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God. You're rebelling against him. And you, so you have an enemy who's all-powerful. Think about that. He's going to call you to account. He's all-knowing. You're going to stand before him, and it's like, I just I hope it's all going to work out. That is a groundless hope. If you don't have Christ, and then things that, so then the money, he's not going to take any of that money for him, with him. And you can pick other stuff. Think of other things. A reputation, fame, power, the, other people's opinions of you. What are you going to present when you stand before God? What's Steve Jobs going to do? I got the iPhone. Think about how ridiculous that sounds. To God, Nick Saban may be going to win his sixth national championship on Monday. Wow, that's impressive to us. Do you know what's going to Some of you are all-American athletes or you are awesome. Let me tell you something. I'm not trying to be a jerk to you. No one cares. In 60 or 80 years, your name might end up in a book somewhere that no one reads. And Nick Saban, they might, they'll probably name the stadium after him at some point. And, and 100 years later, no one's going to know who that guy is. You, know, you walk on any dorm campus, you see buildings named after people who gave money. No one cares. I live in the Francis whatever dorm. They don't know who that is. They don't care. It all fades. So what's Saban going to stand before God and go, here's my trophies? It, it doesn't matter. What are you doing today that in 100 years matters? Because we're not talking about 100 years. We're talking like billions of years from now. But what are we doing now that even matters in 100 years? Most of it, none of it. How foolish, how foolish if this is true. He's got an imperishable. It can't be destroyed. That's what imperishable means. Imperishable inheritance for us. Donald Trump, what's he going to do? I got Trump Tower. I was the president. It doesn't, none of, all that stuff goes away. And so some of us as Christians, let me pick on a Christian idol for a minute. The family. I'm not against family, by the way, but we got all kinds of focus on the family ministries, family matters, family first, and you go, what are you going to stand before God one day and go, here's my Shutterfly books? What are you doing as a family that lasts for eternity is the real question. Not just making memories together and being nice to each other. That's great. I'm not against that. I'm not saying that's evil. But if that's all you got, you might as well be a vet here at the clinic, this clinic. You're wasting your life imperishable what he's giving us we have a hard time comprehending this because everything we pursue is perishable undefiled there isn't an illustration i can give you for this undefiled think of the purest thing you could think of it's everything we have is defiled doesn't matter the purest water the purest gold the purest what snow whatever you can come up with it's all defiled because here's the reality everything that we see is tainted by sin even if it's not evil in and of itself even the gifts that god gives us in our lives we're tempted to 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 sin with them, to sin going over them, to, get, to steal the glory for ourselves. Our hearts are deceptive and wicked, so everything we know of is defiled. So we're going to experience something when we receive this inheritance we've never experienced before. Undefiled, unfading. He says here, it's an unfading thing. Again, there's not an illustration because everything we have is fading. If you don't believe me, wait till you're 40. 
my eyesight. I remember when I could see people in the back row. I don't know, you're sleeping back there. I don't know. Can't even tell. I remember when sleeping was not an active sport for me. And I know it's an active sport now because I wake up injured periodically. It's like, why well, I can't turn to the left for like two weeks. I must, it must have been like ninja dream. Like, I don't know what happened there. You know what's happening? I'm fading. And so are you. We're all fading. And the glory fades. And, and, you know, at one time, this was a brand new dollhouse. It's now been renovated. Wings have been knocked off. It's been repainted in certain sections. It's fading. Everything in this life is fading. Some of you buy a new car. Maybe get a new car for Christmas. Oh, it's exciting. It won't smell like a new car forever. Especially if you have four kids, I promise. It's all fading. He's saying here that we're going to receive an inheritance that will be just as exciting on day 10,000 as it was on day one. In fact, I believe that we'll grow in our appreciation of the gifts that he gives us. The ultimate inheritance is Jesus Christ, but he's also preparing a place for us. There are other things that come with this. The inheritance is God. God is my portion, the psalmist says. He's going to give us. If, if this is true, if this is true, church, this should change everything. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond to a pastor like this that doesn't give us any commands? How, how do we get practical and get real about something like this? Let me tell you what to do. Examine your life. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Examine your life. How much of your life actually is lived in light of eternity? Your time, your money, your thoughts, your hobbies, your family, all the things that happen in your life. Just go through it. Start thinking through this. And, and we don't have to decide all this today. We're going to do this series for the next three months. But begin to examine your life. Begin to pray. We're doing a prayer initiative as a church. We've never done this before as a church. We're going to ask our whole church, and you'll hear more about this in the days to come. We're going to have some handouts after the service next week and some of those things. But we're praying, praying, God, what do you have next for us as a church, us individually? How do you want to use us? What do you want to do? Reveal yourself to us. Help us to grow up in our faith. And so start praying. Start praying that God reveals himself to you. So praying that he starts showing you how he wants to use you in boldness, in generosity, in experiencing a joy. That's He wants your joy. Sometimes people think of God as like this cosmic killjoy. He wants you to experience joy, to enjoy him, to enjoy what matters. Don't be a fool like the guy at the hotel. Don't, be, don't waste your life like an adult playing with a dollhouse. God's got a plan for you. He set you apart for this plan. You're his foreigners, elect exiles. He's got a living hope that he's given you, an inheritance that he's given you. We're going to talk about more truth as we continue to walk through this passage. But it should change everything about how we live. 